Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. So I am Frances Hellman, I'm chair of the physics department and I'd like to welcome all of you to the Regents lecture, lecture which is going to be given today by Professor Sally Ride. Uh, this lecture is made possible by the Regents of the University of California and I want to extend my gratitude to the Regents Lectureship Committee headed by Professor John Latiche as well as Chancellor Bergeno who's sitting uh, here with us today and uh, Dean Richards and there's various other distinguished guests in the audience um, so we're very excited to have such a, a great group here. So, um, I introduce a lot of pu public lectures, but uh, it's very rare that I look out into the audience and see so many young people, and usually when I mean young people, I mean undergraduates, but in this case, I truly mean young people, uh, and particularly young women, and so to see so many young women at a, uh, at a physics lecture is really very exciting. Um, it's not surprising. We have a, a, a woman who I regard as a hero and an icon uh, speaking to us today. Um, so, Professor Ride was a native of Los Angeles. She went to school first at Swarthmore and then went on to, do to get her degrees uh, culminating in a PhD at Stanford University. Um, I, Dr. Ride is known to all of us as the first American woman astronaut to go into space, but I want to note that she's also known to me personally as a friend and a colleague and somebody who has gone way beyond the call of duty to foster the development of interests in the sciences. Um, she is a truly remarkable individual. After, her PhD, after receiving her PhD, she was selected for astronaut training and culminating in her two successful uh, space shuttle missions. After the Challenger disaster, uh, she was chosen to be a member of the Presidential Commission investigating that disaster and uh, co-authored the resulting report. She was then assigned to NASA headquarters as a special assistant to the administrator, uh, was responsible for various reports, became the first director of NASA's Office of Space Exploration. She then, and this is where I got to know her, came for, was spent 10 years at UC San Diego as a professor, during which time she created a program called KidSat, in which undergraduate research students supervised by graduate students developed programs to enable middle school students to take pictures from the space shuttle of locations around the Earth. It's just a fantastic program that is, uh, that, that is uh, my understanding, is still going very strong today and is really um, just a real model for this whole sequence of, of involvement of all age kids working with all other age kids and, and uh, a great program. Uh, she's been a member of a whole set of, of high-level national committees, has served on the boards of the Congressional Office of Technology Assessment, um, a long list that I'm not going to go into, but a, a truly distinguished um, national and international reputation. She has, uh, she's on the board of Apple, Viridian, and the MITRE Corporation, a fellow of the American Physical Society, currently serves on the board of the Aerospace Corporation and, the, and, and of Caltech. Her many accomplishments have earned her induction into the Women's Hall of Fame at the California Hall of Fame, as well as awards such as the Jefferson Public Service Award and the National Space Flight Medal. Um, it's, it's really, however, uh, her interest and focus on education that I want to um, spend just a minute introducing uh, her, where, where she, the things she's created. She's written numerous science books for children and in 2001 established a company known as, called Imaginary Lines, but more commonly known as Sally Ride Science. This is a company that creates science programs including national science festivals, classroom science kits, publications for elementary and middle school students with components for teachers, kids, and parents. So I think she is, um, you know, she's a woman who uh, has had just a remarkable career, everything from 
uh, really state-of-the-art uh, uh, science research herself to, this, to the work she focuses on nowadays in science and math education. And so it is on the topic of science and math education, along with her fascinating and inspiring career, that Sally's going to speak to us this evening. And it's my great pleasure to welcome her, a scientist, a trailblazer, and a friend. Thank you, Francis. Uh, it's great to be here, first of all, and it's good to see uh, so, many, so many faces and so many young faces as well. When astronaut Jim Lovell of Apollo 13 fame was circling the moon, he looked back at Earth and called our planet a grand oasis in the great vastness of space. That's extremely unusual eloquence for an astronaut. You're not going to hear any more of that um, today. What I would like to do, though, is uh, uh, share a little bit of my experiences in the space program, tell you a little bit more about how I got into the space program, um, and then uh, spend some time talking about science education, as, as Francis noted. That's my passion now. That's what I'm spending uh, essentially all of my time on now, and it's uh, uh, a major problem for our, for our country today, as I'm sure uh, most of you in the audience know. Uh, I was a graduate student at Stanford just a couple of months away from finishing my PhD in physics. I was sitting in the Stanford student cafeteria one Tuesday morning, about 8 in the morning, reading the Stanford student newspaper, the Stanford Daily, and I still remember to this day opening up the daily and seeing in the lower right-hand corner of page three of the daily an ad that NASA had put into the Stanford student newspaper and student newspapers all around the country saying that they were looking for applications for astronaut. And the moment I saw that ad, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. I ripped it out of the newspaper, and I literally applied that afternoon. Um, turned out a lot of other people did the same thing. There were about 8,000 of us who applied to that, that opportunity. And the reason that there was such a large um, applicant pool was that this was the first time, actually in over 10 years, that NASA was accepting any astronauts at all. And it was the first time that they were admitting women into the astronaut corps. And in fact, that's the reason that they, they uh, publicized in university newspapers, because they were smart enough to know that unless they reached out uh, to where qualified women would see the, um, the announcement and realize there was an opportunity, uh, that they would never even find out about the chance to apply to the, uh, apply to the program. So 8,000 of us uh, applied to that program. Out of uh, that group, um, NASA picked 35 of us to be the first class of astronauts specifically selected for the, um, the space shuttle program. We were to join the 20 or so astronauts that had been around um, in the astronaut corps for 10 or 15 years since the, um, the uh, Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo programs. That group of 35 is actually still representative of the astronaut class today and representative of what NASA is looking for in astronauts. Um, our group of 35 included uh, 15 astronauts with test pilot backgrounds, and 20 astronauts with science or engineering backgrounds. 
Um, that's common today. Today, the astronaut corps is a little bit less than 40 percent uh, test pilot background astronauts and a, and a little over 60 percent scientists and engineers. Um, that group of 35 also included the first six women. And today, the astronaut corps is right around 25 percent um, women. So uh, NASA and the astronaut corps have all come, come a long way um, since that, that first application. Uh, since I'm speaking at a university, I should, I should tell you that this, uh, if nothing else, illustrates that you should read your student newspaper. <laughs> you just never know what you're going to see in it. Um, I should probably also tell this group that, um, without a doubt, my father was the happiest person on the planet when I was selected to be an astronaut. Um, my father didn't have a scientific bone in his body. He taught political science at a community college in Southern California. He was about to have a daughter with a PhD in astrophysics, and my father didn't know what astrophysics was. My father was not able to explain to his friends what his daughter was about to do for a living. And then I became an astronaut, and my father's problems were over. <laughs> he understood it. He could explain it to all of his friends. He was a very happy man uh, from, from that point on. Um, well, as, as soon as I finished my PhD, I packed my bags and um, moved to Houston, Texas, along with all the other members of our um, new astronaut class. Uh, Houston is where the Johnson Space Center is located. That's where astronauts go to live and work and, and train. And I got in line for my turn to fly in space. Um, my turn came first. My first flight was on the seventh flight of the space shuttle. That was my first chance to uh, strap into a rocket on the launch pad and go from a standing start to 17,500 miles an hour in eight and a half really fast minutes. And then uh, once the space shuttle's engines cut off and we were in orbit around Earth, it was my first chance to uh, unbuckle, float weightless in the, the space shuttle. Weightlessness, by the way, is something that I recommend to all of you. It's, <laughs> it's just fun. There's no other word for it. And then, of course, it was also my first chance to float over to the window and take a look down at the really spectacular view of, of the Earth below. Um, I got to look out uh, uh, and see coral reefs off the coast of Australia. I could see glaciers um, in the Himalayas. Um, I could see de deforestation in the Amazon. Um, I could see smog over Los Angeles. Uh, I could see the red roofs of Stanford. Um, which, I, which I looked for. I didn't look for Berkeley. I apologize. I did, did see Stanford. And I thought that what I'd do, um, uh, for a few minutes anyway, is try to share that perspective with you. Um, I learned a long time ago that whenever an astronaut goes someplace to, to speak, uh, if they don't bring pictures, the trap door opens really quick and the, the lecture's <laughs> over. So I did bring some, uh, some photos of the, uh, of the Earth from space to try to give you a sense of the, the different kinds of things that you can see from space and the, the perspective that we've got. Uh, so I put this in just to prove I'd been in space. If you look off towards the horizon, this is the kind of perspective that you've got. You can see a few hundred kilometers off uh, in any one direction. You can see uh, maybe a thousand kilometers off towards the horizon. This, of course, is Florida. This is what Florida looks like to an astronaut in the space shuttle or the astronauts in the space station right now. The shuttle and the station uh, fly in just about the same orbits. And there are a lot of things that you can see in this picture. Um, a bank of clouds off the east coast of the state. 
if you look closely about halfway up the East Coast, uh, you'll see Cape Canaveral jetting out into the Atlantic Ocean. You can see the different colors of uh, blue, the light blue uh, of the water surrounding the state just along the coast. And that, that's indicative of the shallow water right near the coast. And that water uh, gets to be a, a deeper blue as the water is, uh, becomes deeper. There are a lot of other things that you can see, but one of the reasons that I put this in is it's, it, it uh, provides a really good example of one of the most striking sights um, to an astronaut the first time he or she looks off towards the horizon. Take a look at the horizon. You can see that right where Earth ends and space begins, there's a really, really thin royal blue line that goes all the way across the horizon. It almost looks like somebody took a sharp blue crayon and traced the horizon of the Earth. That thin blue line is Earth's atmosphere. That's all there is of it. That's all that separates everything we know on our planet from the vacuum uh, the blackness, the emptiness of, of space. Um, you know, when you stand on Earth and you look up, it looks like the air goes on forever. When you see it from this perspective, it's obvious how, uh, how thin and how fragile the atmosphere really is. Um, let me show you just a, a few examples of the natural features that you can see. This is a picture looking through the Straits of Gibraltar. You're looking at uh, Spain on the left and North Africa on the right. And take a look at Spain, the southern part of... Uh, of the country. Um, it's kind of a light brown, and that light color brown changes really abruptly to a, uh, to a darker brown. Uh, that line of abrupt color change is an earthquake fault. It's a fault that runs uh, the width of, of Spain. It turns out that it's really, really easy to see um, linear features like, uh, like faults and seismic structures from, from space. Okay, this is a, a part of the world that's uh, in the news a lot. Uh, this is a picture of the Middle East. This is the Mediterranean Sea on the left side of the screen. So you're looking at a picture of um, Israel, Jordan, Syria, a small corner of, uh, of Egypt. Um, right in the middle of the picture is the small Sea of Galilee. And directly below it is the kind of oblong-shaped Dead Sea. If you let your eyes go from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea, you'll notice that there are following a linear feature, a straight line. That line, uh, linear feature, is the Levantine Fault. It's a huge fault structure in the Middle East. It's actually the reason the Sea of Galilee is where it is, the reason the Dead Sea is where it is. And that same, um, that same fault extends uh, over 1,000 kilometers further south and is the one that opens up to form the, the Red Sea. Um, there are a lot of other things that you can see in this picture, too, but just take a look at the different colors uh, in the land. Those are indicative of different types of rock or different ways the land is being used. So you can actually learn a lot about land use from, uh, from photographs or perspectives like this. If you look down at the kind of the lower right corner of the screen, you can see water drainage patterns. Uh, that gives you an idea of how easy it is to monitor water resources from, from space. And just as an aside, if you look down at the lower left, you'll see that there's a, a really sharp line uh, that separates kind of a dark color land from, from the, uh, uh, just this little triangle of um, kind of sand-colored land. Uh, that line, that sharp, sharp line is actually the border between um, Israel and, and Egypt. 
and you could see it at the time this photo was taken just because the, of different types of land use, different ways the land was being used um, in the two countries. This is what a hurricane looks like from orbit. Uh, and this was a, a Category 4 hurricane that was active um, during my second space flight. Uh, look at the, the detail that you can see in the feeder bands of the, of the hurricane. It's a, um, really pretty spectacular. And the next, the next photo is going to be looking right down the eye. And here you're seeing all the way to the water of the Indian Ocean through the, through the eye. Um, the uh, detail that you can see in the eye wall is uh, really spectacular. This is, a, this is a great picture. I wish I had taken this picture. No, I didn't. Let me show you just a couple of examples of um, uh, the effects of civilization that you can see from space. Um, this is a, uh, a picture looking down at a small corner of Portugal, and what you're seeing are the contrails from airplanes going in and out of Lisbon's um, airport that day. And you can actually trace these contrails back and trace out the arrival and departure routes at the airport. Um, the astronauts who took this picture thought they were taking a, uh, taking a picture of kind of an, uh, an overcast day in Brazil. So this photograph uh, is looking from east at the bottom to west at the top, all the way across the Amazon basin in, in Brazil. And they thought they were photographing an overcast day um, with the overcast kind of cut off by the Andes Mountains there at the top of the, the, top of the picture. Turns out what they were photographing was not an overcast layer of clouds, but accumulated smoke and haze that had built up as a result of the fires that had been set to burn parts of the Amazon forest. And what they thought were um, individual puffy clouds or thunder clouds, um, thunderstorms, were actually plumes of smoke over fires that were burning at the time this photograph was taken. The one uh, right in the middle of the picture is an enormous fire, actually larger than some of the worst fires that we get here in California, Southern California, uh, Northern California. And this is what um, the Amazon basin looks like every day during the dry season. Uh, this is what the Earth looks like at night. Um, a lot of people have this image of, of uh, astronauts um, kind of... Uh, um, with their, their eyes glued to the windows and snapping photos during the daylight side of the orbit and then quick getting back to work and doing what the taxpayers are paying us to do on the night side of the orbit. Um, nothing could be further from the truth. We're actually at the windows all the time. <laughs> and you can see why. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, this is a, a picture uh, of Midwest United States. And the cities uh, that you're seeing here in the lower left is Indianapolis, and then going diagonally across uh, the screen, um, you see Dayton and uh, uh, Columbus, Cincinnati, a little bit to the south. And if you go all the way to the upper, um, upper right-hand corner, you see kind of a, an orange smudge. Um, that smudge is the, the city lights from uh, Philadelphia all the way to, to New York City. It's absolutely beautiful, uh, beautiful sight. One of my favorites... Uh, Memories of looking down at the Earth, one of the most spectacular uh, sights that I had was, uh, and, you know, there were several, so it's a little hard to choose, but one of them was uh, during my second flight, we were uh, uh, primarily an Earth-observing flight. So what that meant to us was that um, our instruments needed to be pointed to the ground, so our windows were pointed to the ground. So we had a really good view of, of the Earth. And we, uh, 
uh, had one orbit that took us up the east coast of the United States at night. And we could look off in the distance and see Miami coming about 200 kilometers away. And then we were able to literally trace out the entire east coast of the U.S. in absolutely continuous lights all the way from Miami up north of Boston. Um, absolutely spectacular. A, a trip that took us about five minutes, by the way. Okay, let me uh, transition now and talk uh, a little bit about science, science education and the importance of science education. Um, I, I want you all to, first of all, appreciate the vintage 1970s photo of Carl Sagan. Um, but Carl Sagan once said, it's suicidal to create a society that depends on science and technology in which no one knows anything about science and tech technology. And of course, he's absolutely right. Science and technology, as you all know, are the engines that, that drive our economy. And it's really ironic when you start to think about it that our society that relies so much on science and technology and really got to be a world leader through our ability to innovate and engineer and explore has put so little emphasis on science education and so little priority on it um, over the last uh, few decades. Um, as a result, um, we've got a, a real problem with science education today. And it's easy to, to uh, drown you in statistics on that, but let me just share a few with you. Internationally, U.S. students are now uh, 25th in math and 21st in science. Not even, uh, not only not, not first, but not even really very competitive with their, uh, their colleagues in other countries. U.S. now ranks 17th in high school graduation rate. And in case you think that we make that up with college graduation rate, you're wrong. We're 12th internationally in college graduation rate. But you don't need to compare us to other countries to see that there's a problem. Just within the U.S., only a third of eighth, uh, a third of eighth graders uh, actually don't graduate from high school. And of those that do, less than 43% meet college readiness standards in math, and it's even worse for science. It's less than 30% meet college readiness um, standards in science. And in fact, 90% um, of fifth through eighth graders in physical sciences are taught by a teacher without a credential in the, in the subject. So uh, maybe it's not surprising that we've got a problem with, uh, uh, with science education. Science education, however, has become um, a national imperative. We all know that science education is important, and it's important for a lot of different reasons, some of which you may not have thought about, some of which you undoubtedly have. Um, our global competitiveness depends on the next generation of scientists and engineers. So it's really important that we inspire the next generation of rocket scientists and, and uh, environmental engineers. Um, it's also critical to prepare the core of the future skilled workforce. Um, that's because in the next decade or so, fully 80% of the jobs in this country, and that includes just basic living wage jobs, are going to require some background in science, math, or technology. So it's really becoming an equity issue. If the kids in school today don't get a good education in math and science, they're not going to be competitive even for basic living wage jobs when they, when they graduate. Um, maybe more broadly, uh, science literacy is increasingly important. We need to create scient uh, scientifically literate citizens. Um, 
we're surrounded today by issues that have their roots in science and technology. Just open the paper, uh, log on to your computer. Uh, you're going to uh, many, many, many of the issues that face us today have their, their roots in science and, and technology. So the students who are in school today, in elementary school, middle school today, um, have to have a background in science and math just to be able to understand the issues that they're going to be faced with when they're growing up, to be able to vote responsibly on uh, those issues, and in fact to be able to make intelligent choices and decisions that affect their own lives, whether it's about uh, medicine, whether it's about uh, their communities. Uh, you know, so it's, it's really very, very important on a lot of levels to improve science and math education in this country and make sure that our students get a good, uh, a good education. Now, um, I said that we'd been neglecting science, uh, science education on a national level as a national priority for, for decades. Um, that is changing, and it's uh, changing quickly. Science education is now in focus and there are a lot of examples of that that I can give you as we, uh, as we go on. Um, what I'd like to do is focus just a, a little bit now on one aspect of the problem that I'm particularly familiar with. And let me tell you what some of the, some of the research says. Um, you know, there's, there's some, some good news here and some bad news. Um, in fourth grade, according to the National Center for Education Statistics. Students like science. Uh, they've been doing um, surveys of fourth graders in this country for several decades, and this hasn't changed. So don't think that this result is new. This result isn't new. Um, you can check 20, 25 years ago, and you'd get the same, essentially the same result. And, and in fourth grade, 68% of boys like science, and 66% of girls will self-report that they like science. So there are two good messages there. In fourth grade, fully two-thirds of the kids still like science. You know, that's a big percentage. And the second message is, in fourth grade, it's as many girls as boys. Um, but then we start to lose those students from science and math. They start to disengage. They start to drift away. And it starts happening right about in fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade. Um, and it happens for both boys and girls, uh, but it turns out that a disproportionate number of girls and minority students disengage right at that, at that time. And the reasons are not reasons of aptitude. They're not reasons of, uh, of interest. I mean, after all, in fourth grade, they were interested in science, and science hasn't gotten less interesting um, when they got to fifth or, fifth or sixth grade. Uh, the reasons tend to be societal. Um, and there are a lot, of, uh, a lot of ways to think about that. Um, you know, it may not be, picture yourself as an 11-year-old 11 11-year-old 11 student, maybe an 11-year-old girl, who says she wants to be an electrical engineer. Well, you may still get a slightly different reaction from your friends, from your peer group, maybe even from your teachers or your parents, than an 11-year-old boy who says exactly the same thing. Um, it may not be cool to be the smartest person in your math class. In your particular school, it may not be cool to be good in math. Um, society also has a lot of ingrained stereotypes about what a scientist looks like, who does science, and what it's like to do science, and what science is. 
And a lot of those stereotypes just aren't, just aren't right. So uh, the typical, stereotypical view of a, of a scientist is some geeky-looking guy that looks like Einstein and wears a lab coat and a pocket protector and hasn't seen the light of day in a week and doesn't communicate with people. And that's what society thinks uh, when you say the word scientist. And if you don't believe me, um, try this Try this at home. Um, try this. Uh, we, we do this with uh, teachers that we train, and we've done this with a lot of kids. Um, ask your... Um, uh, ask your teachers, ask a group of adults, ask a group of teachers, ask a group of 12-year-old students to draw a scientist. And what you get are the images that look like Einstein or that look like you know, some, some sort of geeky person. Um, this is not surprising because I invite you to all do this. Go to, uh, go to Google, go to Google Images and type in the word scientist and see what you get. Um, it's really kind of surprising. You get, a, you get a page of pictures that look like that, <laughs> which were drawn by uh, one uh, fifth-grade girl and one, actually both fifth-grade girls who drew um, those, those pictures. And the problem is that um, if you're a 10-year-old girl or a 10-year-old boy, this is not really what you aspire to be when you grow up. <laughs> So it's right about this time when, when kids start to internalize the messages that the culture is sending them, right around fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, that they start to think about what, uh, what society thinks a scientist is and what society thinks a scientist does. And this is the, start, the sort of image that they start to internalize. And we don't, you know, not, not all girls uh, run away from science. We all know that. There are uh, increasing numbers. They're staying in the pipeline for science and engineering. But we still lose a large number of students and a disproportionate number of girls right in that age group, uh, largely because of these societal issues. And it's not just the stereotypical view of a scientist. It's the stereotypical view of science. They don't view it as collaborative. They don't view it as creative. They think scientists work alone rather than in groups. They, think, they picture it being almost rote, going from the, the first equation on the page to the last. They don't think of it as, as creative. And most important, they don't think of it as relevant to their world. So in the abstract, there have been surveys that, that reveal that uh, students will tell you that science and engineering are important, science, technology, engineering are important. But they'll say, it's important, but it's not important for me. And that's a, that's a very common reaction for students in this uh, fifth, sixth, seventh grade, um, grade range. So, uh, you know, that's, that's a, a good part of the problem, uh, the combination of the fact that students have the wrong impression of science and scientists, and they've got misperceptions about their own suitability for the subject, and maybe more important, um, the potential importance of the subjects for them in their futures, no matter what careers they choose to, to pursue. Um, now, the research um, does show that you know, there are fairly easy ways to counter this, and you can imagine what, what a lot of them are. It's really important to start countering the stereotypes early, and to do it as early as elementary school, upper elementary school, and middle school by introducing students to a wide number, uh, a wide variety of scientists 
and a wide variety of uh, things that scientists do. So they need to see a diverse group of scientists that, by the way, look to them like normal people, that maybe have dogs and cats, that used to be kids, um, so that they can start humanizing these careers. They need to see people that used to look like them so that they can envision a path for themselves into science, uh, science or, or engineering. So you need, you need to be able to expose a classroom of students to scientists of different backgrounds, different ethnicities, um, who are involved in different, different sorts of science, sciences, different ages, who took different pathways into science and who have, uh, who have a variety of other interests as well as, uh, as science. Um, it's also important to, to touch on the, the diverse and relevant things that scientists do. Teachers often don't know this, and therefore the, their students often don't know this. Um, to give you an idea, by the way, of how subtle some of these messages can be uh, let me, uh, that, that uh, start to dissuade kids, let me tell you about something that, um, that actually happened to me um, about three years ago, so not decades ago, three years ago. Um, I was on the Caltech campus at one of our, we, uh, Sally Ride Science runs uh, science festivals for girls, and we do these on college campuses um, on a weekend, and this particular one we held at Caltech, we had about 1,200 uh, 5th through 8th grade girls and their parents on the campus um, for the day. We, we claim it's the, the highest density of uh, females on the Caltech campus, uh, by the way. Um, but um, at the, um, towards the end of the, um, of the event, uh, one very, very, very proud mother brought her 12-year-old daughter up to meet me. And this mother was not going to let me get away until I knew that her daughter was a brilliant mathematician. She had not only won the school math competition, she had won the regional math competition, and she was going to go on to the state math competition. And this mother could not have been more proud. Um, and I, I congratulated the mother, I congratulated the daughter, I wished her good luck in the state competition, and then her mother went on to say, and I don't know where she gets it. I was never any good in math, and I don't know any women who are. And it's like, what this mother didn't realize was that the message that she was completely unconsciously sending to her daughter was, you're not normal, you're not like every woman I know. And, you know, what's the most important thing when you're 12? Um, it's to be normal. So it may very well be that that, that young girl, you know, will, will blast ahead and become um, a mathematician. Uh, or it may be that in a couple of years she'll start um, internalizing this, these messages and think that, well, she's also, um, she's also good in French literature and that that is something that maybe her mother thinks is more normal for a girl. Um, or, a, or a woman to study. So this gives you a sense of how subtle some of these messages um, can, can be and how difficult it is to, uh, to get at this, this problem. Well, to, uh, uh, to address this and, and related issues, this is kind of the motivation behind um, uh, my starting uh, Sally Ride Science and that, that company. We actually focus on this age group of fourth through eighth grade 
and we think that a key part of our mission is to make a difference in, in girls' lives in that age group and in society's perceptions of uh, their roles in science and, and math and, and engineering. Um, one of the things, I'll just tell you about one of our programs, we do a lot of uh, teacher training. Um, so we train um, elementary school teachers and middle school teachers, partly because these teachers are the ones on the front lines as the, the students start to internalize the messages that we're getting. Um, and we try to train these te- not try to, we do train these teachers on what, make them aware of what the research says, um, the reasons that, that uh, uh, science is important for all students, um, what the research says about when students disengage from science and why they disengage from science, um, make them aware of the effect that subtle messages can have, and then also, uh, most important, tell them about what the research says about the importance of countering these messages early and often in the classroom, and then giving them strategies that they can use with the lessons that they teach anyway to begin to to do this. And we give them the strategies and the resources and and classroom materials to do that. And I uh, included a couple of examples of the classroom resources that we give. We we give them uh, some books that we created that are cool careers in. And so there's a cool careers in engineering, cool careers in physics, cool careers in environmental sciences, cool careers in medical sciences. And I thought I'd uh, show you one page at random here. completely random example of an experimental physicist, and there's a picture of Francis's soccer team uh, down below. So the idea is that to, to uh, get across to kids that Francis is a, uh, a real person and that she has interests that are other than um, experimental physics um, and that, uh, that uh, make, it, make her someone that the scientists can, can relate to. And Inez, you don't get away either. <laughs> This is one from our environmental sciences book, I think. Um, so uh, we've, we've featured uh, uh, Inez and actually a few other people from, from Berkeley. Uh, we, we give a really wide range of scientists and engineers, very diverse backgrounds, male and, and female, so that all the kids in the class can pick out one or two or three faces that they can, uh, that they can relate to. And it's a, uh, a really important thing to do. So the goal of our program is to to get teachers and therefore uh, let, help them guide students to get from the view of scientists on the left to the view of scientists on the right, something that they can see as uh, of interest for, for themselves. Uh, now, I wanted to spend uh, just a little bit of time um, describing a couple of other, uh, other programs um, that are going on, a couple at a national level, and one uh, program here at Berkeley that all get at the, the issue of uh, uh, science education, improving science, science education. Um, give you just a, a couple of examples. Um, at the, the national level, uh, the president has, has announced, um, actually a couple of years ago, a edu- program called Educate to Innovate, that is actually a, a White House initiative that you can think of almost as an umbrella organization um, or an um, umbrella initiative that's putting a very strong focus on K-12 science and math education. Uh, the intent is to raise the visibility of the importance of science and math education and to try to change 
the perspective, change the culture around science and, and math education in this, this country. They're, they've done a lot of different things under, under this program. Um, I won't go into the, to some of the things that they've assembled under it, but I, I will just give you an example of uh, one that I had a chance to participate in um, that's, uh, that is in the category of a cool thing that tries to change the perception of science. This was astronomy night at the White House. So picture an October evening, about 8, eight at night, after dark, um, telescopes, about 20, 25 telescopes set up on the, the south lawn of the White House. And the only people there were 150 middle school students from um, schools around uh, Washington, D.C., the president, first lady, and uh, their two daughters, and about 10 adults who weren't allowed to say a thing, <laughs> except look through this end of the telescope. Um, and the whole point of this was to get kids excited and to show kids that, you know, the President of the United States cares about science education. He wants them to care about science education. And the only adult who talked that evening was the President talking to the kids for about 10 minutes, telling them how important science and math education are. Um, now, that's just one event, but it's the sort of event that can start changing, um, changing the, the culture. More tangibly, um, the, there's been a lot of money that was put in, uh, a lot of it from stimulus money, that was put into science and math uh, education, K-12 science and math education. Probably the most visible was the race to the top competition among states, which I won't go into, but many of you know about this. Uh, it was $4.3 billion that states had to compete for, and uh, many, many, many points a huge advantage went to those states that put a strong focus on uh, K-12 science and math education. And in fact, the states that have been, that, that won that competition have very strong components of uh, science and math. Um, one of the programs under uh, Educate to Innovate that I know quite a bit about was uh, one that was spawned under Educate to Innovate but then spun out. It's a program called Change the Equation or an initiative called Change the Equation. And it's a corporate initiative that's led by CEOs around the country um, who are aligning and leveraging their efforts and their company's efforts to transform science and math education in the United States. Um, the board is composed of Craig Barrett, who's the the uh, former CEO of Intel. I'm the vice chair of the board. Craig is the, is the chair. Ursula Burns, who's the CEO of, of Xerox. Antonio Perez, the CEO of Kodak. Uh, Glenn Britt, uh, CEO of, uh, of Time Warner Cable. Um, these, there are now 110 member companies all signed up by their, their CEOs, and they consider this to be a business imperative. Um, this is enlightened self-interest for them. They know that they need... Uh, scientists and engineers um, in greater numbers and uh, in, in uh, higher quality than the system is sending their, sending their way. Um, their, the whole initiative is dedicated towards preparing students for STEM-related careers, for science, engineering, uh, technology, math-related careers, and creating a scientifically literate, um, literate workforce. 
Um, and finally, let me tell you uh, uh, all a little bit about a program that you probably know much more about than I do, uh, but I know quite a bit about its uh, sister program, um, CalTeach, which is uh, uh, a great program that gives undergraduate physics, chemistry, biology, math, engineering, um, geology majors, uh, the opportunity to simultaneously take education courses so that um, within four years they can graduate with both a degree in physics and a, a teaching credential, essentially. So it really raises the, um, increases the number of highly qualified uh, science and math teachers that, uh, that the university produces. This program, I'm familiar with, um, uh, with the program at UT Austin uh, where, it, where it began several years ago. And at UT Austin, it's uh, uh, increased by a factor of 20 the number of undergraduate uh, physical sciences, biological sciences, engineering, math majors who go on to get to uh, go into teaching. Um, it's now being replicated at 22 colleges and universities around the country. Berkeley was one of the first to replicate this, this program. And it's, it's really a good program because uh, key to solving the problem or making progress in the problem of science education is increasing the effectiveness of K-12 teachers, particularly the effectiveness of uh, uh, K-12 science and, uh, and, and math teachers. Um, remember this, the statistic from earlier on that 90% of middle school physical sciences students, so all middle school students take physical sciences, 90% of them are being taught physical sciences by someone who doesn't have a credential in that subject. Wouldn't it be better to have them be taught by somebody with a, a bachelor's in physics? Um, it, it, certainly, it certainly would. Well, um, just to just to wrap this up, um, in 1957, when the Soviet Union launched, launched Sputnik, which was the, the world's first satellite ever, um, that act so shocked the United States that science and math education, um, creating the next generation of scientists and engineers in this country, became a huge national priority. Um, in the early 60s, science and math curriculum were completely revamped. Um, the goal of sending, uh, sending a, a human to the moon and bringing him safely back to Earth was created partly to put this focus, a tangible focus, on the importance of, uh, of science and technology and to, to demonstrate um, the technical prowess that we had in, in this country. Um, when I was growing up, which was uh, right around then, shortly after that, right in the middle of all this focus on science and, and math education, um, it was really cool to be a scientist or an engineer. Um, you know, kids grew up dreaming of building rockets to the stars. They grew up dreaming of finding life on, on Mars. Um, science and engineering were very, were very cool in the 1960s and early 70s. We need to make science cool again. Um, when I was a little girl, I was dreamed of flying in space. And amazingly enough, I still can't believe it to this day, uh, that dream came true for me. Now it's up to all of us 
to ensure that this generation of students in school today has access to a high-quality education so that the boys and the girls can build the foundation that will enable them to reach for the stars and achieve their dreams too. Thank you very much. Yes, recently the New York Times did an article on the dwindling influence of science competitions. One of the comments to that article really struck me. It was the story of a woman whose daughter has come to the University of California at Berkeley as an engineering student and ex excellent in mathematics, and then realized that she may not have a job by the time she had her bachelor's, has, had left that major, went to economics, and got an investment bank job. Her colleagues at this time right now, she said, are in engineering and unemployed. You're focusing on the front end of the pipeline, and that's an excellent goal. But what about those students who are coming out of college, teaching, who want to do engineering, who want to do physics, who want to do the biological sciences, and they're facing one of the worst job markets ever, and no one is giving them a chance. How do you use your influence to talk to those CEOs, and instead of just looking at the picture of, of fourth graders, which is very, very important, also looking at those young people who are coming out of Berkeley right now, and Stanford right now, and Harvard right now, and the community colleges right now, and the Cal States right now. How are you using that influence to help them? Thank you. Yeah, so um, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting problem because, uh, you know, unemployment, of course, is an is a enormous problem in the country right now. And, of course, there are a lot of uh, engineers you know, I come from aerospace, right? I've, I've got background in aerospace. There are a lot of engi aerospace engineers who've lost their jobs, and it's a little hard to get a job in aerospace engineering right now. That's uh, shrinking considerably. But at the same time, there are other areas of science and engineering that are new fields that are growing. So uh, I think that, that it's a distorted picture to say that engineers aren't getting jobs. In fact, most of the companies um, and the CEOs uh, you know, from those companies are hiring, and they're hiring uh, uh, from the engineering graduates. In fact, they're complaining that the schools like Berkeley, like Stanford, are not graduating enough, are not producing enough scientists and engineers to meet their needs. So there are a lot, of, uh, a lot of engineers who've been laid off as, the, as a particular company shrinks or even goes out of business. As I said, aerospace, I, I know a lot about that, that industry. But there are also a lot of engin young engineers who are going into a lot of the, the newer areas of, of engineering. So I think that it's, um, uh, it's probably dangerous to generalize to engineering because there are different areas of engineering where the job market is very bad, and there are areas in engineering where the job market is very, very good. So I think it's a, um, uh, a, a difficult, difficult thing to generalize now. Hi. Um, 
First of all, thank you so much for your talk. I really enjoyed it. Um, my name is Maria. I've been a high school, a ninth grade science teacher in Oakland, so primarily minority students. And if you ask the kids why they lost interest in science between fourth and ninth grade, they'll give you a reason that wasn't on your list. They'll say science got hard or science got boring. Um, and if you look at a fourth grade science lesson, it happens once a week and it's a game or an experiment. And in high school, they might be doing an experiment once a week, but the rest of the time they're doing calculations and vocabulary and quizzes and worksheets. Um, so I guess my question is, what's your approach? Especially they don't like the math. They feel like the math gets hard. Um, <laughs> what's your approach to that, that aspect of it? It's actually, um, it's probably one that I should have put up there because a lot of that is, um, <clears throat> um, a lot of that is that uh, students, it's part of this stereotype. It's part of what, what society communicates that science is hard, math is hard. Science is dull, math is dull. Um, math is hard. Um, so is Latin. Um, you know, so is French. Uh, so is Chinese, if you're going to take Chinese. Um, science is hard, but so if you're going to go to law school, law school is hard. Med school is hard. Um, you know, I think that, that a lot of students think in this country, there's, there's actually been interesting research that shows this, you know, students in this country believe that you're either good at math or you're not. They don't believe that if you work at math, you can learn it. Like if you work at a language, you can learn a language. So they, if, they, if they don't get the math right away, they're often not willing to just put in the time to learn the math. And I think that that's something that we need to, um, to turn around and to make people realize that you really do need to work. You need to work to understand math. You need to work to understand science, just like you need to work if you're going to learn U.S. history or you're going to learn anything else in school, and that math can come easier if you, um, if you learn it. So I think that that's... Um, that, by the way, is not true of, so U.S. students have again been compared to uh, students from other countries, and it's very typical for U.S. students to say, you're either good in math or you're not, and it's very typical for students in other countries to say, if you work hard, you can learn math. Um, so that's a mindset that we need to, that we need to change. Hi, um, I'm the m mom to a fifth grader right now who's very interested in science, strong aptitude for math, and um, he goes to a public school in California, and they have no science education at his elementary school, very, very little at the junior high school he'll be going to. Um, the standards are very low, and he can get good grades without trying at all, and so he's gotten really lazy, and I'm just really afraid he's going to lose interest because he's not being challenged and pushed. And um, the, the programs that you do for schools are just fantastic, but I'm kind of wondering what you would tell a mom whose kid isn't lucky enough to go to a school that has programs like that so that I can, you know, expose him to science and push him to try harder. Yeah, it's, it's really a problem because um, uh, the, a lot of the, uh, um, you know, the expectations, the bar is just is too low for students. Um, in fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, eighth grade, whatever. We have uh, low expectations for, uh, for achievement for our students. 
And that needs to change. Part of that is because, um, you know, for quite some time, uh, the, you know, sort of the, the general feeling was, well, the only people that need to learn science are the ones that are going to be go on to become rocket scientists or something like that. It's not important for all the kids. Well, it is important for all the kids. And so we need to expect them to learn it. We need to hold them to higher standards. Um, coupled with that is we need to make uh, science more interesting and, hey, probably what that means is make science class more like science. Have, have kids do science experiments, do hands-on experiments, do things that scientists do. Scientists don't memorize the periodic table. Um, you know, scientists... Uh, um, solve problems, they ask questions, they try to get at the answers, and, and they devise experiments to, to try to teach them things. Often they get results that they don't expect, and they learn more when that happens than if they get an answer that they did expect. And that's not the way that science is taught in a lot of classrooms. In some, in some classrooms it is taught that way, but in a lot of classrooms it's, it's not. And so, uh, unfortunately, the, the problem that you describe is a very, very common problem. And it's a combination of the low expectations and then um, the, uh, uh, the way that science is taught. A reasonable amount of that, by the way, can be traced back to the qualifications of the, the science teacher. It's easy to imagine that, let's say, a, a seventh grade teacher who doesn't have any background in science but is teaching science, doesn't really know what it means to teach science, um, isn't, familiar, isn't comfortable with the subject, doesn't really understand it to any depth, doesn't really want to be asked questions. And this is a, a, you know, more common than, than we'd like in, in schools, um, schools across the country. So increasing the um, effectiveness of science science teachers, math teachers, is one of the most important things that you can do to help improve science education. Get us more high-qualified science and math teachers into the, into the schools, and they'll help to solve some of those, those problems. Looks like one more question. Um, went into space? How old was I when I first went into space? That's a very good question. So, so first we'll do a little, a little quiz. Um, how old was the youngest person ever, to, the youngest American ever to go into space, do you think? Anybody? Yeah. 33. That's really close. <laughs> The answer is 32, and it was me. <laughs> Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.